0: Welcome to the latest COVID-19 Journal Club. For those of you who've not been here before, then I'll tell you a little bit about it. Essentially, there is so much going on in the world of COVID-19 at the moment that the whole idea of evidence and papers coming out is fantastic, but this is a time when we really need critical appraisal. We really need to have a look at the quality of the papers. It seems that, gosh, pretty much anything can get published at the moment. So we need to remain that sort of sceptical person who was really looking for whether or not these are practice changing and what we can understand. It's also an incredibly exciting time to be in evidence-based medicine because it's happening right in front of us. There's never been a time like this in my lifetime, and probably not for the next century, where we'll see science happening right in front of us and be part of it. And that's, that's really exciting, although also terrifying. On the webinar today, have got some regular members of the panel. So we've got Rick Boddy, professor of emergency medicine, Paul Clapper, professor of virology; Charlie Raynard, all round superstar, and I can't remember his exact title. Dan Horner, professor of emergency medicine, and Pam Vallely, who's also a professor of virology. Now, the person you may not recognize is Lauren Westerfer, who's joining us from Massachusetts. Uh, she's one of the leading lights in FOMED education. She runs a huge podcast and critical appraisal site and educational site in the US, which we've been following for years. Lauren, we met many years ago. Um, you're a great friend. And just tell us a little bit about what you've been up to.
1: Sure. I'm an emergency doc in the United States and also uh, a junior researcher studying knowledge, translation, how to get people to translate evidence into practice. And COVID-19 is a great, (laughs) great venue for that. I also have a podcast, as you mentioned, Foamcast, where we do things from critical appraisal to core content, emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, I just highlight the core content is particularly good. If you're a trainee, it's definitely worth them getting onto that. Topics we're going to cover today are our usual format. We're going to do a deep dive into the effect of non-pharmaceutical interventions um, to contain COVID-19 in China. Really interesting paper, which Lauren's going to lead us through. And then we're going to do our usual rapid fire, five minutes on a paper, just to bring you some highlights of some really interesting stuff that's going on out there. Without further ado, I think we should get on with the first paper. Lauren.
1: This paper is the effect of non-pharmaceutical interventions to contain COVID-19. And it's a modeling paper looking at all of the things that, that they did in China at the outbreak of COVID-19 as we've kind of learned, these non-pharmaceutical interventions contain anything from the least aggressive, which is uh, hand-washing, so sort of basic fundamental, we should do that even not in a pandemic, to things like isolation of the ill and quarantine, contact tracing, so figuring out who has been exposed, and then quarantining those people, and then, of course, travel restrictions, things that, that more sort of infringe upon people, canceling mass gatherings, even canceling school or work, sort of shutting things down, the lockdown. So, These are the various non-pharmaceutical interventions that people are referring to. Specifically in China, what this paper looked at was they looked at three major things that happened, and the first would be inner-city travel restrictions, early identification and isolation of the ill, so being able to test people, identify them, and then make sure that they are sort of kept away from the unexposed. And contact restrictions, and that's what we're referring to as as social distancing, encouraging people to stay far apart, uh, closing down businesses, mass gatherings, and then just ensuring people don't really have that frequent interaction with each other. So in this paper, they looked at these three specific things. They used three data sets to pull that together. Now, in China, where this initially started, it kind of coincided with the Chinese New Year, so a major holiday, so lots of travel there. And so they were really interested in the effect of some of these restrictions, which imposed travel, and they wanted to kind of get that data about population movement and how people moved. They used these data sets from a, a large wireless carrier, an internet carrier, to kind of track that movement since at least half the population in China does have smartphones. Not everyone, little kids don't, but a lot of people have those or have used this internet service. And so they used a database to look at smartphone users in and out of 340 cities. They also looked back At uh, 2014, 2015, they looked at what happened during the Chinese New Year, kind of at that time, looked at city level movement during that time, and then county level historical movement. So, how were people moving? What was their general travel during those times to come up with some data about how people migrate or move related to the Chinese New Year? The the model that they used is called a SEER model. it's really popular in in epidemiology and especially modeling infectious diseases we want to know what would happen if we did certain things or where might this outbreak go and a lot of people are using this sierra model which It's an acronym for sort of the movement of the population between things. So people are susceptible. They might be infected. They could be infected with COVID-19. And then there's the exposed. They've been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or then they've even been infected, and that's the I and the SEER model, or they've recovered. They were infected, and now they have convalesced. A SEER model kind of captures people moving through those states as they uh, are unexposed to completely recovered from it. In this model, they e- treated each city as their own subpopulation um, because, again, they wanted to sort of track movements between um, them and capture that this really started as a regional outbreak. They did have to make some assumptions, like saying that the median incubation time was 5.2 days, which is relatively standard. And then they used an r naught, so the basic reproductive number of 2.2. And this has been, been estimated to be all kinds of numbers. The most conservative are around two to three, some estimates which account for the asymptomatic population or the pre-symptomatic population even pushed that up to 10 to 15 without certain restrictions. So here they used sort of conservative assumptions and didn't even factor in the asymptomatic population. And this is sort of what they found. If social distancing occurred, but inner city travel was not restricted, there's not a huge difference between the combined interventions and unrestricted inner city travel. Didn't seem to make much of a difference here. It lowered it some, but not a ton. Now, without early case reduction and isolation, identifying people who are symptomatic and then moving them to quarantine, uh, it's estimated that that it would be uh, five-fold higher without the early case reduction and isolation. What would happen if they waited? So the first thing that they did was they looked at what would happen without these interventions. And had they not done any of the interventions, they estimate there would have been 67-fold higher infections in China as i mentioned without the early detection and contact tracing it would be fivefold higher uh inner city travel restrictions 2.6 fold higher and then without that intercity travel it wouldn't have been much changed so onefold the other question is what if they'd waited and kind of put it off because these are you know, impact people fairly majorly they say if they would have waited a week it would have been threefold higher two weeks, seven-fold higher, and three weeks, 18-fold higher. So this is just an example of what would have happened there if they had unrestricted inner city travel and contact. So again, 18-fold higher if they would have waited three weeks. In two weeks, it would have been less. And then one week, it would have been uh, three-fold higher cases is what they estimate. What if they had imposed these restrictions earlier? Uh, They would have seen, they estimate 66 fewer cases. uh, If they would have done it one week earlier, 86%, two weeks, and then three weeks earlier, 95%. And this is all computer modeling. They made a bunch of assumptions here to to come up with these numbers, but they're estimates to, to kind of grapple with as we think about many countries, many states are starting to think about how do we emerge from this and which interventions do we drop first? Is it travel? Is it contact tracing? Is it early detection and isolation? For example, in the United States, our testing situation is, is not that great. So, so this is an interesting paper, I think, because trying to look and see where do you get the most bang for your buck? Where where do these interventions, where, where might they be most effective? Alternatively, what if we you know, see a second wave start to come up? Which ones might we want to do and how might we want to act early? It's very inconvenient to have daycares and schools closed, you know, to have places of business. It really has tanked the economy in many places. So acting early, you don't want to act too early, but I think that this is is an interesting portrayal of of sort of the the risk of not acting early or the risk of acting acting later. So I found this paper interesting from that fold. You know, it, it is a modeling paper, so taking the exact numbers and saying that you would you would get sixty seven uh, fold higher cases not doing these interventions. I don't think that we truly know that, but I found it was a interesting modeling of these interventions where um, most papers seem to be treatment papers and I found this interesting because it's the other things that are going on.
2: Thanks a lot Lauren. That is a beautiful explanation of a really complex paper so if anyone's read that paper with full text you'll see that it's actually really difficult to follow. I just want to point out that we've now got Ellie Hathers with us who is an expert in public health from Dundee. Thanks for joining us Ellie. This one seems to be right up your street we'd really appreciate your opinion on what the implications are for public health, how we implement these non-pharmacological interventions at this stage in the pandemic.
3: Really interesting, isn't it? And I think that the real challenge, and you know, the, there's been coverage in the local media, at least recently, a, a modelling paper that looks a bit similarly, looking forward and back, and to see how many lives could have been saved in Scotland if you'd implemented lockdown measures two weeks early. And I think this is The eternal crystal ball gazing that we are going to be seeing for quite some time. I think there's a bit of an inherent bias in these modelling papers because they're they're tethered to the events happening when the events did happen. And so all the modelling is sort of based on the assumption that in some way where it happened was the right thing, if you see what I mean. I think it's incredibly challenging how we we get the population to accept the need for lockdown measures. You just look at the way that the world is responding to them now. You look at parties in England over the weekend, you look at the American responses to lockdown and you can see that individuals are not massively good at behaving in a way which restricts their liberties if they can't see the damage to or the risk to their health. I mean frankly individuals aren't particularly good at behaving in a way that's good for their health at the best of times and so this is a kind of scaled up version of that frightening people is a great way to get short-term benefit behavior change but it doesn't last particularly long and if we'd frightened people anywhere in the world two weeks before we we did would they have actually stayed locked down for any longer would the things have happened when we needed them to would we actually just see a different pattern And then some different exciting modelling papers produced about now.
2: I'll bring in the rest of the panel for some opinion on this paper. So Pam and Paul particularly might need to come to you on this one for some virology expertise and your expertise. I was going to ask Ellie and Lauren about what they thought about
4: the Swedish approach to lockdown and this sort of laissez-faire attitude they have in Sweden. And yet their death rate per population is higher than the neighbouring country of Norway, where they have stricter lockdown, and it's the same or not worse than ours. This sort of runs counter to this modelling that we've got from from China.
3: One of the problems with comparing countries is that we aren't all the same. And my understanding is that the Swedish population live in a quite different way. And I wouldn't want... I'm I'm a public health doctor. I'm allowed to make sweeping generalisations, but I wouldn't want to get to the point where I'm making stereotypes, but my understanding is that in general, um, older people in Sweden live quite distant from their younger members of the, the even their families and so on. So there is more of a, if you like, a kind of social isolation built into the way that they live, plus a kind of philosophical approach to state control, which is probably quite different. I don't know. I don't understand the numbers that level when i look at them sometimes i hear them as being reported as much worse and sometimes i hear them as being reported as much better depending on which broadcast you're listening to or which confidential release you've got in your hands my suspicion is time will tell uh, which is a rubbish answer when we're stuck in the middle of it if part of me the cold academic is quite glad that different countries are doing things different ways because it means that somewhere down the line we'll be able to look a little bit more dispassionately at this and be able to see which things were valuable and and perhaps why and things like the modeling paper will help us to disentangle that we're doing everything at the moment with one hand tied behind our back aren't we
0: i think the other place would be interesting to look at is belarus which is the country where they've really not decided it's not worth doing anything really they're still having major sporting events and travel so um I, i agree with you ali there's a there's a beautiful natural experiment going on there although it is it's not beautiful it's terrifying but you know we will be able to pull at the end of this some really quite interesting things to look at the, the validity of the models. The other thing in the models I thought was was really interesting, Lauren, is the confidence intervals are huge. So in their models, this is where the line is, but the, you know, the, the confidence intervals are absolutely enormous. So and the further you get away from where we are now, so one, two, three, four, five, six days, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and much more difficult to predict. So, you know, it is tough.
2: It was interesting to see that unrestricted travel didn't seem to have that big an impact by itself and yet that seems to fly in the face of what we saw in you know the 1918 pandemic the big second wave occurred when there was a mass travel people traveling home from the war and going back to their families and of course the outbreak really kicked off after the Chinese new year in Wuhan so I was interested to see that because it kind of conflicts with what you might expect.
1: Yeah, they did have the, they showed the maps. Um, It's a very technical paper, which is outside of my general wheelhouse. But the maps that they showed of sort of the modeling of the distribution of cases did show an impressive span without the intercity travel restrictions. So, It looked like the number of cases wasn't significantly affected, but sort of stretched across mainland China. And I wonder, you know, this this doesn't look at a second wave. So I wonder if some of that would have been, well, those cases might have occurred much later that spread further. And then what happens is you get a larger wave because then those are going out and sort of causing other outbreaks kind of further away. That's just sheer conjecture based off of trying to make sense of what I saw there.
3: It's a really good point. You can't have a second wave if the first one is still going. So the peak comes up and goes down again because we've got control measures in place. And actually, if, if cases continue to rise, you don't get to the point of a second wave because everyone got it the first time around. That that could be one of the, you know, I mean, obviously, modelling isn't going to pick up that kind of thing because it's got such a fundamental shift in it anyway. But I think that's also part of the, the explanation for what's going on there.
2: Ellie, what do you think is, are the implications for a second wave? We saw the potential multiplication in the severity of the wave of the pandemic based on the time it takes to react. Does this mean that if there's a, a signal towards a second wave that we ought to be shutting things down as we go forward?
3: I'm very glad I'm not a politician because that means I can give my unfettered answer, which is absolutely yes. And that, that w- what we should have is a system which is much more alert much more ready to flip into pandemic mode again much more quickly and actually I would argue we should be able to do that not just for coronavirus and for where we are now but hopefully our systems stay primed so so that when the next flu pandemic comes along we can do the same thing more easily. I, I guess my worry is that people will start to think of it as being the boy who cried wolf as things go on But I personally, I want to see our systems ready so that we can go into the same deal quickly if we see cases start to rise again. What our politicians tell us they are doing? But we will see how that translates over the next
5: few weeks. I I think that's a really good point, Ellie. And I I wonder actually whether we're going to see that put into practice again by the end of this week, because, you know, the, the lack of social distancing that was going on in my neighbourhood last Friday night was huge, so... I just wonder whether we'll, towards the end of this week, we'll actually see a a spike again. And, you know, are are we going to, what are we going to do? We're just relaxing um, some of the the rules. Do we go straight back in again? You know, I just, as you say, it's a big experiment.
3: It is. And I suppose the other thing is that if it doesn't go up after the, the way that they, I mean, most neighborhoods, I think, were the same, although not mine. I live in a very antisocial area, it turns out. But that if despite all that mixing, cases don't rise, then that will be challenging too, because scientists uh, have been saying don't have gatherings, don't get close together. That's where the disease spreads. We actually run the risk of our own credibility being undermined if, if they don't go up. So part of me almost wants to see a rise in numbers following on from this because it proves that we've been right up to now but obviously I absolutely don't want to see more people getting sick because I've had it it's nasty
2: move on to our rapid fire round and we're going to go to Dan Horner we had a paper a couple of weeks ago about the high incidence of venous thromboembolism in patients with COVID-19 and we discussed anticoagulation strategies well this paper might help us to in a little way to answer that question about whether we need to give treatment dose anticoagulation so over to you Dan.
6: Thanks Rick so a bit more clotology on the journal club which is great thanks for giving me opportunity to chat about this one which I found interesting. So we have talked about the increasing or the the supposed increased incidence of thrombotic events in patients with COVID-19, especially those who are severely ill. But as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're getting a lot of observational cohort data through uh, that is just presenting incidents or the findings in different intensive care units. And people are looking for this disease very hard at the moment. So when you look for it, you will find more of it. And it's difficult to get the true incidence of symptomatic events. But this one came to me through a variety of sources, a couple of medical directors in my hospital sending it to me because their title is quite leading. And then it's been picked up by a number of media outlets to suggest that possibly giving people treatment dose anticoagulation might save lives. So, you know, this is another one that needs full critical appraisal and we need to be aware of the detail, especially if we're going to believe the title and we're going to change our practice. Um, so what is this as a rapid fire? This is a research letter, is the first thing to note. So this is not really a published manuscript uh, as such. you know, It's a short three-page summary uh, of some recent work that's been done out of Mount Sinai. This is a research letter, which is an uncontrolled observational cohort, essentially. And within the Mount Sinai healthcare system in New York, they have introduced an algorithm that seems to lean people slightly towards a lower threshold for empirical treatment dose anticoagulation. I'll just show you their algorithm, which is doing the rounds on the internet at the moment, and highlights an at-risk group where they seem to think that the benefits of treatment dose anticoagulation outweigh the risks, even if you haven't got a diagnosis of of VTE. So they are doing it a reasonable amount. And I think the authors rightly wanted to publish the sort of early findings from their data set as to what kind of, of differential morbidity and mortality they were finding. So in this uh, research letter, they present uh, 2,773 hospitalised patients with lab-confirmed COVID-19. They break them down into uh, those patients who received treatment dose anticoagulation, which was 786, versus those patients who didn't receive treatment dose anticoagulation, which is 1,987. Uh, And they present mortality rates that are essentially the same between those two groups. So 22.5% in the anticoagulated group and 22.8% in the non-anticoagulated group. We don't know what the non-anticoagulated group were getting in terms of prophylaxis or mechanical prophylaxis. Um, There's no detail in the paper to attest the baseline characteristics for those groups, and there's no real reporting on what usual care comprised, because it's a short research letter. They also talk about bleeding in that population. So in just over 2,500 patients, they saw bleeding rates in uh, anticoagulated patients of 3%, which is higher than you would expect and major bleeding rates in non-anticoagulation patients of 1.9%, which is, again, a bit higher than you would expect if those patients were just receiving prophylactic dose anticoagulation. So that's interesting. What they then do is they take a subgroup of of the 2,500 patients that were mechanically ventilated, so that's 395 patients in total, and they split them into the group that got anticoagulation, 234, so about two-thirds Uh, And the group that didn't get any anticoagulation who were mechanically ventilated, that's 161. And there's quite a big difference in the percentage of mortality between those two groups. So 29.1% mortality in those patients mechanically ventilated who were anticoagulated versus 62.7% in those who didn't receive any anticoagulation. So a doubling of mortality. And, you know, if you were going to talk about absolute risk, then, you know, a 30% increase, which is huge, isn't it? Of course. They talk about bleeding in that group, but they only present a single bleeding percentage for the whole group of mechanically ventilated patients. So you can't really tell whether the anticoagulated patients bled more than the non-anticoagulated. I mean, the assumption is that they would do, but we haven't got that data in, in the letter. And their major bleeding rate was 7.5%. So that's high, you know, that's over three times what you would expect in terms of major bleeding outcomes for critically ill patients receiving anticoagulation. So high and, and difficult to explain. In terms of what the authors conclude, they, they do a good job of highlighting the issues with this uh, paper. You know, they point out it's observational. There's unobserved confounding. There's unknown indications for anticoagulation. There's lack of baseline characteristics. There's there's possibilities for indication bias, and then they do a Cox proportional hazards analysis to try and, and look at a hazard ratio for anticoagulation in total. So. Uh, how does the hazard ratio decrease per day if you're anticoagulated compared to not not being anticoagulated? And they present a hazard ratio of 0.86 per day, suggesting that you are less at risk of death if you are anticoagulated overall every day for which you are anticoagulated, which is interesting. And they conclude their findings suggest some therapeutic anticoagulation may be associated with improved outcomes. But there is some critical appraisal to do here, isn't there? So, you know, this is very much their presentation of a select a bit of detail from their real-world cohorts, uh, and it's very difficult to know what was happening to these patients. So we don't really know, as I was saying, in the non-anticoagulated group who was getting thromboprophylaxis, both mechanically and pharmacologically. We haven't got any baseline data to know who was in which group. Uh, we don't know who was excluded. So you would kind of assume, I, w- I would think, that people being admitted to intensive care, In mount sinai with clinicians following this algorithm if they didn't get anticoagulated then there's presumably a reason for that Uh, and that's presumably because they're a particularly high bleeding risk or they've got lots of comorbidities or they've got renal failure all of which would put them at a higher risk of death immediately so that's the problem with these kind of uh, uncontrolled observational cohort studies you're looking at two different groups one of which is anticoagulated and one of which is not but but can you really compare them you know, they might be very, very different. You know, they try to account for some covariates in their Cox proportional analysis, but you can't, account for unknown confounders and you can't account for everything. They also don't really tell you within the paper who had ceilings of care in terms of treatment limitations. So perhaps those patients who didn't get anticoagulation were all capped at a ceiling of care because the expectation was that they might not survive and it, and it seemed mean to therapeutically anticoagulate them and stick needles in them every day. You, know, you don't know who's in which group. Perhaps the group who were anticoagulated were patients who were more likely to receive all levels of care because clinicians thought you know there was more hope in, in pursuing treatment. So difficult to know what was going on here, really, and no real data on bleeding risk in addition. I'd come back to the fact that when you look at the kind of raw mortality between the two groups, there's no real difference. So 22.5% in the anticoagulated versus 22.8% in the non-anticoagulated. Because of the lack of detail in the, in the letter, it's difficult to know if that's a typo, because that doesn't really look like the Kaplan-Meier curves that they present towards the end of the paper but but you know their, their percentage statistics suggest there's no overall benefit to empirical therapeutic anticoagulation in all patients being admitted to hospital. They do present very very high bleeding rates and so that's worrying in itself and then we don't know how long these patients were followed up for so those high bleeding rates are probably the tip of the iceberg you know when we're, we're talking about follow-up in these patients we should really be looking at at least a month if not six weeks if not three months because When you anticoagulate someone, they tend to stay on anticoagulation for a reasonable period of time. And the longer they stay on it, the higher their bleeding risk goes. So if this is data with limited follow-up, then of course those bleeding risks will be downplayed, but they're already high difficult to know how long they did follow up patients for so they talk about a 28-day period between the middle of March and the middle of April uh, and then the paper goes on to be published in early May but it's hard to know whether they followed everyone up. It's an interesting research letter you know published in a relatively high impact journal and I thought it was worth highlighting because it's got a lot of press and the press is reporting you know does treatment dose anticoagulation confer a mortality benefit in the COVID-19 especially for the sicker patients. I think we need to be really cautious about that you know there's lots of bleeding risk here. Uh, This is an uncontrolled uh, observational cohort study with lots of unknown confounders of the authors point out and it's difficult to draw firm conclusions without getting any of the real raw data from the research experiment. You know it's an interesting hypothesis uh, and one that needs to be tested Uh, and I think this paper leaves us with more questions still than answers. You know does intermediate dose prophylaxis help? Does therapeutic dose anticoagulation help for those who are highest at risk? But I think having read this I'm still coming back to individualized risk benefit discussions really uh, and whilst there might be some role for empirical therapeutic anticoagulation for patients who are particularly high risk who you're unable to scan so you can't really transport them perhaps because they're on renal replacement circuits or ECMO circuits or CPAP at 80-90% oxygen and you're worried about transferring them for imaging whilst there might be some benefit in that cohort we still don't really have the evidence to confirm it so it's always going to be based on the individual assessment of the benefits versus the risks of major bleeding uh, and the concerns of comorbidity.
1: I found it amazing that they didn't acknowledge the immortal time bias here, where you can't die in the anticoagulated group. You are in the unanticoagulated group if you die in those first two days. So it took two days for people at Median to start anticoagulation. And during that time, if you were started on anticoagulation, you were immortal. You had to survive to get it. And so I, I found that very interesting in this case, that that it wasn't addressed, but that is a, a major thing. When I see this paper, I'm like, that's, I can't really buy the results unless that's addressed.
6: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Lauren. There's also lots of queries about the time of anticoagulation, isn't it? So they, I think they present a median of three days of anticoagulation. So what's that all about? You know, that's not treatment of severe critical illness, is it? A couple of days of anticoagulation just doesn't really make any sense to me, so... Does that mean that people are changing policy? Does that mean that this algorithm was introduced during this study or or this cohort that was studied? Does it mean that different people did different things and you've got outliers, you know, and they're presenting median data with IQR? Really hard to tell within the context of a two- to three-page research letter. So how this has got press... I just don't know. Uh, And it's a really good example, again, of our thirst for answers, isn't it? And our hunger to do something, you know, well, that's good on Cox proportional analysis. Let's get it out there. But actually, you've got to read the detail and, and you've got to you've got to look for the things that aren't within the paper. And then you've got to ask yourself, wow, you know, is this actual evidence or is this uncontrolled data that needs to be verified?
2: Thanks a lot, Dan. That's a terrific overview. Simon, you wanted to make a quick comment about the level of evidence as well, I think. Dan,
0: you're obviously terribly enthusiastic about clots as always, but um, of all the work you've done and the stuff we've seen about anticoagulation before, this is pretty low on the evidence-based medicine scale, isn't it? So this is sort of a level three, I think, type paper. And so it's not normally the sort of level that we would change practice on.
6: Absolutely. So you'd take probably level 3B, wouldn't you? So I, I would need to bring up Sackett's table of evidence-based medicine to get my Bs and Cs and As right. But this is an uncontrolled observational cohort study with significant potential for error, even accounting for the Cox proportional hazards analysis. So, yeah, low level of evidence, you know, hypothesis generating, perhaps that doesn't come across in the title, I don't think. And it certainly
2: doesn't come across in the press release. So it's something that, like you have had, Dan, you're, the people at the hospital may come to you and ask you about, should we be doing this? But I think the answer is, this is a very low level of evidence. And just like we had with hydroxychloroquine, with those first papers that suggested lots of benefit, um, we're in the same situation here that we don't actually know, based on this, these data, which is the right way to go with regards to these calculation. Let's move on to a very topical issue again, vaccine development. And Charlie's going to take us through this one.
7: Liatal conducted a systematic review of sorts, looking at all the vaccine development going on in the world. They had to look in slightly different spots to where you'd normally look for uh, published papers. They looked in a WHO dataset, and they also looked on clinical trials registries. Once they completed that search, they found 115 candidate vaccines being developed around the world. They found that 78 of those 115 candidates were active, according to freely available data. And of those 78 active vaccines, five were in phase one clinical trials, which is phenomenal when you think about the timescale for this pandemic. We're six months in and we've got five phase one clinical trials. Two of those vaccines were from the United States, and three of them are being developed in China. They're all on a variety of different platforms, from adenovirus vectors that express S proteins, to DNA plasmids, to artificial antigen-presenting cells. So there's a nice heterogeneity there for different platforms that might work better in different populations. Is five enough? Google et al. did a review in The Lancet about vaccine success rates, and to summarize briefly, from pre-clinical to phase one trials, they found that there was about 40 to 57% success rate. From phase one to phase two clinical trials, they found that there was a 40% to 90% success rate. And from phase two trials to implementation, they found that there was a 22 to 79% success rate. So there is quite a big drop off from each phase going forwards. And obviously not all vaccines are developed the same way. And there's lots of caveats with those estimates. The other thing to bear in mind is that they mentioned five phase one clinical trials there. They missed off the University of Oxford one. It's not entirely clear why, but it highlights that maybe there's more going on that we don't know about, which is reassuring. The picture might be more than five. And also, since they've published, the Chinese group have registered a phase two clinical trial which is really reassuring. It highlights that they're looking at moving forward. So in summary, this systematic review of vaccines of sorts has found five trials for in phase one. And also, they've also highlighted that from what was a 10-year development cycle for vaccines, it's getting down to what might be one year. Now, there's uh, many a slip between lip and cup and it might be that some of these vaccines don't work and that some of the um, ones that are yet to be in phase one are the ones that transpire to be the vaccine that gets us out of this crisis. But this, for me, is a really uh, hopeful and reassuring paper that there is loads of work going on with vaccines and they are
2: being rapidly developed. Brilliant summary, Charlie. And we've got a brilliant question here. Our panel can get their teeth teeth into here. What would you say to the anti-vax community that vaccines are being rushed through?
3: We need vaccines to be rushed through. These are vaccine development is not um, starting in a vacuum. The concepts behind these have been in place for a long time. The principles behind vaccine development and testing are well established and safe. In the grand scheme of things, the number of Adverse events associated with vaccines are infinitely smaller than the number of adverse events associated with the diseases that they are there to prevent. In the case of this particular disease, I cannot see a way that we get a global return to something resembling normal that doesn't have a vaccine as part of that process. However, Anti-vaccination propaganda and approaches are based on the fact that people are frightened and that they don't feel that they get enough information about what is is there and about a kind of mistrust of authority more generally. And we are at a time where mistrust of authority is increasing and things like lockdown don't help that in some ways. I think we need to be as upfront and honest with people as we possibly can be about this as with every other vaccine and we need to be accepting that there are always going to be some people who cannot accept that this is their right way to go forward and to do what we can to compassionately deal with people who are frightened and do what we can to not let the conspiracy theorists get too loud.
7: We're going through preclinical trials, phase one, phase two. So we're following the normal peacetime procedure developing vaccines and moreover the five vaccines that are in phase one trials four of them were based on platforms that have been used and developed in peacetime so there is pre-existing safety data already for four of the five vaccines we already have
5: just a word of caution from a virologist though because you know we have seen some bad vaccines coming through previously that have caused a lot of problems and you know i think what's going to be really, really important. Absolutely, we need to get this you know, vaccine in place as, as soon as we possibly can. And the various strategies that are being looked at to, to produce a vaccine is absolutely right. We need it from lots of different sources. But we need to make sure that we can reassure the public completely that, that this is going to be a safe vaccine. It's not actually going to cause problems in the people that we give it to um, at the end, because we have seen that, that sort of event previously with, with vaccines.
4: I think that's absolutely
5: right. With Haunting respiratory virus vaccines is the, is the
4: study that was done against RSV the 1960s where they used a formal and fixed vaccine gave it to babies and then the babies had higher death rates and higher hospitalization with serious disease because the vaccine had actually primed The wrong components of the immune system and it led to immunopathology in these babies who had the pre-primed immune system rather than giving them protection. The other thing about respiratory vaccines is they don't have a record of prolonged protection following vaccination so to get it right, and this, this panoply of new vaccines that are being tried, the great hope is that at least one of them is going to actually overcome these difficulties and be a useful one. Let's hope more of them
2: than normal get through to actual phase three study. I have two questions, if we could answer them really very, very quickly. What age group will this vaccine help? Children, pregnancy?
7: The different vaccines types will hopefully help different subsections on subgroups of society in different ways. Some vaccines are better tolerated and generate a better immune response in different subgroups. So the hope is that if we get more than one candidate vaccine coming through these trials, that we might be able to target it to different groups. And that leads nicely on to another question from Carrie Thomas, which is, are any of these five vaccines live? The list of the vaccines is uh, available on the WHO website, but just I will just read it off for you very quickly. One is an adenovirus type 5 vector. One is a DNA plasmid vaccine. One is inactivated, another is inactivated, and another is a LNP
2: encapsulated mRNA. So none of them are live. Let's move on to our next paper. And I'm going to talk about this one. Plays to my interest in diagnostics, and um, we've got uh, some real experts on the panel that can comment on this as well. So you might have heard about the Abbott antibody test that's been released with a uh, lot of hype, as you might expect, because we've all have been needing some good high quality tests to arrive in, uh, for SARS -CoV2, and here we've got a giant in the diagnostic community, Abbott' releasing its IGG test for antibody uh, testing for SARS-CoV. So let's talk about this—an evaluation of that uh, antibody test. What did they do? Well, they've got their antibody test, which runs on an Architect analyzer. That's the chemistry analyzer that you'll see in your labs where you run troponin and uh, other uh, routine assays. That you'll have to if you're an Abbott site, you already have those analyzers. They took a sort of case-control approach to this. So first of all, to assess the specificity of the assay, they took people who they know haven't got COVID, and they knew they didn't have COVID because they were patients who presented before the pandemic. So in 2018-19, they had samples collected, apparently for HSV testing, and what was left over, they tested for these antibodies. They don't expect anyone to have SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. And of 1,020 samples, they found just one false positive. So that gives you a specificity of 99.9%, which sounds pretty good. And then they went on to assess sensitivity. So to do that, they took some patients who they knew had SARS-CoV-2 infection, because they had PCR-positive samples. So there were patients who were hospitalised with COVID, and residual samples that could be tested for the antibodies. There were 125 patients and 689 samples tested across different days. Now, they found that, that remember here, the condition they're trying to diagnose is COVID. So that's the reference standard. And they're assuming that everyone with COVID is going to develop antibodies. And so the sensitivity of this test was 53.1%, in patients who were seven days from symptom onset, not very good. But by day 14, that had risen to 96.9% and by day 17, 100%. So what you'd expect, the sensitivity gets better over time and looks pretty good by the time you get to day 17. This is why it was well hyped because those results look so good. And then they went on to do a seroprevalence study in Idaho where they took 4,856 patients uh, who were just from the community and volunteered to sign up to this seroprevalence prevalence study. They tested them for antibodies and they found that in Idaho the prevalence of antibodies was 1.79%, which seems quite low. Perhaps the most interesting finding about that is that the highest prevalence of antibodies was in the very old patient people uh, over 80 and the lowest prevalence was in children. Just 0.4% of children had the antibodies. I would critique this by saying it's case control And that muddies the waters a lot when you're talking about sensitivity and specificity. It's not a good approach to a diagnostic accuracy study. Really, you need to prospectively collect samples from patients who present with suspected COVID. And then you get a much more realistic impression of sensitivity and specificity. But it's the best that we've got quickly. So it's welcome evidence and it's led to a lot of marketing. So you can book your private test for £60. The question is, should we? I'm looking at Pam and Paul in particular to answer that one. Well,
4: I love this one. The specificity data is interesting. They they use sera that, they, as you said, they've collected from a previous study, and they represent patients from all all across America, and they got very low false positive reactivity rate, which looked good. And then they switched to Boise, Idaho. Now, now, Lauren, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but. I seem to remember that that's on the edge of the prairies and social distancing is naturally practiced there. So the rate of infection in Idaho is, I think, fairly low anyway. I couldn't understand why a group from Seattle, which is, of course, a very densely populated city, were doing a study in Boise, Idaho. Wouldn't it be more, make more sense to do it with the population in Seattle where it's, it is spreading and they, they have got high prevalence of infection? So it was all a bit of a strange study. The actual assay itself, Abbott Diagnostics have a reputation of producing some of the finest immunoassays for hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV, but they do have a slight track record of releasing not so good assays to start with and then refining them. Looking at the antigen that's mentioned in the assay, I haven't actually seen the full details of the assay yet, they're using a nucleocapsid protein so you predict that there would be more cross-reaction with other circulating coronaviruses than one that was perhaps used different antigens. And what I would like to have seen is a study looking at the population pre-December in Seattle, where you would expect coronavirus spread to be greater from the normally circulating coronaviruses. That would give us the true specificity of the assay. And then actually do the study in Seattle where you've got a lot of infections. So I think it's interesting, but I'd like to see a study from a major city to actually prove that this assay is actually as good as it apparently looks from this paper.
2: In terms of what we do and whether you book your private test, I think it seems that this is a matter of curiosity. If you're really curious, you book it, but actually the clinical use case for antibody testing is yet to be defined. Uh, so we'll perhaps cover that in a future episode of the Journal Club because there might be some more evidence in that regard, I hope. But let's move on to screening of asymptomatic health workers at a London hospital. So I think, Pam, you're going to take us through this one. So this was a, is a quite a short paper. It's
5: from a group at uh, UCL and Barts who set up what they called a COVID sortium, which I think has to win a prize for the, the worst title ever anything, but anyway, uh, which is a bioresource. So they've been collecting specimens and they're focusing on asymptomatic healthcare workers in London. They recruited 400 participants, got them all to fill in a a health questionnaire and then recruited them to take a nasal swab and a blood sample weekly for a 16-week period. Any patient who became ill, was self-isolating, who went on holiday or who got redeployed, got excluded and removed from the denominator. So they are only looking at patients who are asymptomatic and remain asymptomatic. The rates of infection that they recorded, so, so beginning on the 23rd of March, the rates of infection in the first week was 7.1% of the population, then 4.9%, then one5 1.5%. Uh, and 1.1. 1. 1. They lost quite a lot of the population after the first week. So in the first week, they had 396 people that they got a throat swab from. Uh, by week two, that was down to 284. So they'd lost 112 participants, presumably because they were ill or self-isolating or, or whatever. And then it was down to 263 and it remained around 267, 269 for the, the remaining time. Quite a lot of that initial 400 that they recruited were lost. I think this does sort of show that the point they make at the end is that, that this is, shows that there's quite a low rate of asymptomatic infection um, in healthcare workers. And interestingly, none of the patients who were tested positive showed symptoms either before or after the test or reported them. I think that the weakness of this paper is that they then compare that with the infection rate in London, the positive test rate in London that Public Health England um, had supplied the data for. But presumably those people who were tested in the London general population were tested because they were symptomatic. Whereas what they're doing here is is trying to test patients who are asymptomatic or healthcare workers who are asymptomatic and who remain asymptomatic. So you're not comparing light with light. What they really should have compared it with is is a community population who are also asymptomatic. And then we'd know whether the asymptomatic rate in healthcare workers was the same as it is in the general population. So I don't think it's quite a fair comparison, actually. And it, it could suggest that it's still possible that it's slightly higher rate of infection in, in healthcare workers. But interesting that it sort of coincides with the um, Office of National Statistics data that came out yesterday saying that the death rate in healthcare workers isn't higher than it is in the general population either. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's, it's potentially positive, but I don't think it was properly controlled. What I would say, though, is that the, the bioresource that they're collecting as part of this COVID sortium is going to be very valuable. And I'm sure that there's going to be lots of other, um, much more interesting data coming out of it later on.
2: Great. So I was struck by that low prevalence, Pam, uh, in this study as you um, mentioned. Some healthcare workers I know have had some interesting reactions from neighbours and so on who are very scared to go close to them. Does this perhaps reassure them? Yeah,
5: I, I think it would. I mean, I, I think the, the rate overall is, is quite low and, you know, what would be really interesting to know is what is the asymptomatic rate in the whole population. But, uh, you know, I, I think the data that's emerging at the moment is that healthcare workers are um, not getting much more sick than other people. If you work in a care home, it seems to be a slightly different situation. But for healthcare workers, labourers, and everybody else should be reassured that they're not posing any greater risk than any of the rest of the population.
3: Can I offer a bit of a counter thought on this? I think that the fact that we lost you know, over 100 people between week one and week two of the study suggests an awful lot of healthcare workers are infected, but those are, were symptomatic and therefore different. I guess there's a problem that we have no idea at this point whether being PCR positive but asymptomatic means that you are infectious to others or not. And that obviously um, is one of the great mysteries that that we want to know the answer to, and and we are far far too far away from from knowing. But I think the other thing ab- about all of this is just that what you're seeing there is that is about asymptomatic carriage in a population who are already, you know, also being symptomatic, and so trying to separate those out is is the challenge. And then the other bit is how asymptomatic is asymptomatic so a a phrase i have encountered recently which i found quite helpful is posi symptomatic so actually if you go back and other studies have shown if you go back to people who were allegedly asymptomatic and tell them that they have a positive test and go back through possible symptoms suddenly they have a bit of a tickly throat or they have a you know they've been feeling a bit more under the weather And the retrospective application of that means that that the definition of asymptomatic is different. It, It affects your pre and post test something or other. It's not probability, but it's something else. And again, all of these things, I think, will come out over time. And doing what you're not meant to do in journal club and throwing personal experience into it. I know that suddenly having had a positive test myself helped to explain a whole load of little things that I ha- would have otherwise gone to work with. I think this is really important. I'm not sure it would necessarily reassure me if my next door neighbour was a nurse or my husband being a GP means that I am less worried about their symptoms or that, about them giving me the disease than otherwise. But I do understand your point.
5: Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is is just what a wide variety of symptoms People are, you know, retrospectively reporting once they know that their thing, be- you know, because some of them are really very atypical to the sort of fever and cough that we started off thinking that this. This was the typical symptoms for, we don't know, there was 112 people lost between week one and week two, and we don't know why they were lost. Um, So I think it's really hard to to draw the conclusions that they've really drawn from this paper. But I think what you can say is that of those people that they did screen who were reportedly asymptomatic, the the rate of positivity was quite low.
2: Thank you, Pam. Let's move on to our final paper and signings through this one, which is quite topical again because we've heard about this. the app-based contact tracing.
0: Yeah, I'll be super quick with us. It's at the the Isle of Wight, actually. So down south, separated by about 20 minutes from Southampton. But it is an isolated place. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. But this is something slightly different. This is a paper looking at the acceptability of app-based contact tracing. I thought the first question I wanted to ask with this one is, the lead author is Altman, but it's not Doug Altman of the famous statistician. I think it might be a relative. But there you go, from Oxford and Germany and Italy and the US. Basically, what they've done in this is using a survey methodology, gone out to people and asked them, in essence, would you be prepared to download an app to allow contact tracing? And also, would you be um, okay about the government or whoever, or Google or Apple, downloading it automatically onto your phone so that we can do the contact tracing? And the idea behind the contact tracing in the apps is, essentially, your phone will detect whether or not you've been in proximity to somebody else who has tested positive a, for COVID. So if I test positive for COVID, I tell the app I'm positive for COVID, and then it finds all the phones which I've been near over the last potentially infected period, and they get alerted to either self-isolate or to um, get tested. Seems like a great idea, and it it probably is um, the only other way apart from a vaccine, or we just let it run wild, which we're not going to do, of getting out of this uh, mess that we're in at the moment. What they did is they they approached people, and it's interesting to, to look at how they approach people, because the problem with surveys is it depends who you ask. If you ask Guardian readers about Brexit, you're going to get a different answer than if you ask the Daily Mail. The problem with surveys like this, particularly when you deliver them electronically, is it isolates a whole group of people who are interested in doing, uh, doing electronic surveys. And in this case, they used a company called Lucid. Now, Lucid are a commercial organization which have a panel of people internationally, which organizations use as a panelist's. So these are by definition, people who are tech savvy, IT interested, have got time on them and like answering questionnaires. So this is not the general population. Now, there are systems within Lucid where they can adjust who they ask, depending on how many people have answered previously. So there is some technological elements to this to try and get what they would describe as a representative sample. But fundamentally, this is not a representative sample. This is not the man on the Clapham omnibus. What did they find? I'll tell you what they did find. And they got quite a high response rate from the survey. This is not surprising because they're using people who like doing surveys. Um, it was about 60 percent, which is actually not bad for a survey it's not brilliant but it's not bad primary outcome would you install it um yes um 74.8 percent people would install it and 67.7 percent people would accept an auto install some differences between countries uh, the us and germany were a little bit more skeptical about both of these and younger people and people who like using their phone a lot were more happy to have this uploaded So I think this is very interesting. Again, it's a source of paper which people will use and say, look, we've done evidence. There's papers out there that show that people really want this. You know, three quarters of people want it. The problem is with any survey paper from a critical appraisal point of view, who did you ask? And in this case, that's quite a select group. So I'm remaining very sceptical here. And I can see Paul nodding furiously in the background there. I think you agree, Paul.
4: I do. One of my queries immediately about the paper was, what is lucid? How did they select the?" the people so you've answered that beautifully the other thing i thought about it was that things move on and of course we know more about what's happened in, in korea now where they they have used an app to, to to track people and singapore's come on stream with their app to track people so it's a bit more experience. but i'm, I'm deeply skeptical that a huge proportion of the population are going to accept another app tracking where they go and what they do because they do not trust government
0: which goes back to what Ellie was saying before about um, how we're trying to manage a medical condition, the the, the virus, but it's as much a political problem as it is a medical one in terms of managing this. And I think my limited access and understanding of public health, it it must be an absolutely fascinating time for those of you in virology and public health to look at all of this. It is truly amazing.
2: I've got a question for Ellie on this one. We heard at the start of this pandemic that, you know, there was a herd immunity issue. If we get 60% of the population infected, then this stops spreading because there's too many people protected that it can't get get around. Is it the same with apps? You're not going to expect everybody to use the app. But is there a critical mass of people, of users, if you get a certain critical mass using it, that it's going to be an effective public health intervention?
3: I hadn't really thought of articulating it as a herd immunity equivalent on smartphones, but yes, that's exactly, it's got to be the same kind of principle, isn't it? There's nothing we do where we actually expect to have got full population coverage, but we kind of hope that that is enough to create that safety net that catches those who, who didn't fit into the original.
0: They did address it in the paper, so they were, they um, estimated that you would need almost exactly the same number, so you'd need 60% of the population to um, get that. I, don't, I have not read the detail about how they got to that number, but I thought there was um, some nice concordance there. So you need to infect as many people with the app as with the virus to get herd immunity, which I think is brilliant.
3: Probably based on the same maths, to be honest.
2: Fantastic. We've had a really nice overview of topics today. Thanks to everybody who's joined us, especially our special guests, Lauren, who's joined us despite it being so early in Massachusetts, and Ellie, despite such a busy schedule, for coming and joining us from Dundee, and of course one our on regular panelists as well. So Charlie, as usual, I'll give you a chance just to uh, plug the Arkham Initiative.
7: Every week, the Arkem COVID CBD team are putting out the top five research papers. If you see an interesting paper that you think is worthwhile for emergency medicine clinicians to read, then please submit it through the Google form that's available on Twitter and uh, we'll put it out to
2: all ED clinicians. We are still planning to have another journal club for the uh, next week. So if you can join us then same time, that would be fantastic. And we hope to have another great lineup. So thank you all. And we hope to see you then.